Lord, we just are honored to be here in your presence as we gather in your name. And Lord, that is the prayer of our hearts, that you would dwell in our midst always. We can be in your presence forever, Lord. We long to be in your presence forever. Lord, this is all about you. May you be glorified and magnified through this series. We're talking about who you are. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, especially my heart, Lord. That as I speak, your words would touch my heart, touch all our hearts, and open our eyes to see who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow. I feel like I haven't been here for a while. You know? Uh, the month of February was great. Um, how many of you enjoyed that series, uh, Mental Health in the Church? I mean, that, it was very informative. Um, we're definitely going to revisit um, the topic of mental health in the church uh, as the Lord prompts us to, um, because I believe it's on God's heart. Um, to talk about that, but also to, to see breakthrough in those areas. And we're going to contend with the Lord to see breakthrough in those areas over uh, those who, who, who struggle with uh, mental health issues. And so we will definitely be revisiting that. Um, but I definitely miss being up here. I really do. I love, I love talking to you. I really do. I really missed you. Uh, so it's good to be back. Uh, we're starting a new series called The Lord Is. And... Um, it's basically looking at uh, one verse or two verses in the book of Exodus 34, um, but we'll be getting to that in a moment. But uh, I'll start with this. You know, think back to a time in your life when you had to give someone or something a name. Okay, for parents, especially parents of, you know, newborns, it wasn't that long ago, I'm sure. Baby Arden's here with us this morning. So good to see you. Um, but think back to the time when you had to, you know, think about, you know, what, what are we going to name our child here? Uh, and, and the process of what it was like to, you know, find that name. You know, it's a, it's a significant part of being a parent. It's a significant part of life, really. You know, the first duty that Adam had in the garden was naming Naming the beasts, naming the, the, the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air, creatures of the air. That was his first task. And so naming is a significant thing. I remember when uh, Allie and I were expecting our first child. We have three uh, children now, but when we were expecting Eden, I was praying for a boy. I really wanted a son, you know. I come from a, from a family of three boys and... You know, I wanted to wrestle with my son, play baseball. And I was like, Lord, give me a son. I would love a son. And um, I, we were attending this church uh, not far from here. But during the service, the pastor, the preacher was talking about uh, the Garden of Eden. And it was like this moment where God just spoke to me. And I just, I knew this was a special thought that just highlighted in my mind. 
And the thought was this. You're going to name your daughter Eden. And I was like, daughter? I thought I was going to have a son. Like, where, where did that come from? <laughs> right? And so I was like, oh. Well, after the service, I went to Ali. And I was like, Ali, you know, this crazy, this thought came to me as, as we were in, in church uh, today. The thought was, you're going to name your daughter Eden. And she was like, Eden? Yeah, that's great. Nice. And so this was before we found out that we were going to have a daughter. So we're like, oh, that, okay, well, if it's a daughter, then we'll name her Eden. But I've got a list of boys' names here, so, you know. But then, you know, we found out, you know, went to the ultrasound, 20 weeks, found out, you're having a daughter. We're like, wow, okay. And, um, you know, by the way, I, I'm just, I'm so thankful to God that we have two, two daughters and a son. Um, greatest gift in the world. But, you know, and, but when we found that, I was like, whoa, that was so cool. Like, God actually spoke to me and said, you're going to have a daughter. You're going to name her Eden. And uh, the, it's interesting because the name Eden in the Hebrew means delightful. It means blissful. And um, that's exactly the Eden's characteristics. Like, she is very delightful. She was a delightful child. She's, she still is, you know, and, and very blissful. I mean, she can be shy, but she's very joyful. And um, it just, it matches her character. So cool. Now, in the world of the scriptures, naming was significant. People's names usually carried their divine purpose. It was tied to their identity of who they were, and in particular, who God made them out to be. So if you look at, for instance, the name Abraham, God gave him the name Abraham. He said, well, his name was Abram, and he said, your name's going to be Abraham, for you are going to be a father of many. And so Abraham, which, which his name means father of many, was the great, 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 great grandfather of the Israelites. Because he had descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now Isaac's son, or Abraham's son Isaac, his, not, his name in the Hebrew language means laughter. Laughter. And it's, perhaps it's named laughter because um, Sarah, at her old age, when she found out she's going to be pregnant, laughed at the thought of having a baby. And so when it happened, she's like, well, I'll name my son Laughter. So that's what Isaac means. One of my uh, favorite characters in the Bible, his name is David. And his name means beloved. Beloved. And uh, David was known as a man after God's own heart. God was David's beloved. And David was God's beloved. If you look at the history of the kings, whenever there was a king that followed after God and pursued God, um, he was compared to King David. So names carried significant meanings. You know what? You know what the word name James means? You know, I had to look this up just for this series. I was like, you know what? James it actually means nothing. Uh, <laughs> James is. Uh, a transliterated form of Jacob. And so the Hebrew Jacobo was translated to Greek Jacobos, which was translated to Latin Iacobos, or something like that, and then eventually became James. I'm like, well, how, how, how does that work? But anyway, Jacob, I really don't like the meaning of Jacob. You know, it's not a good meaning. <laughs> Deceiver schemer. <laughs> I'm like, really? 
And if you've ever read the story of Jacob, oh, you'd understand. I mean, he was a scheming little schemer, right? He was a deceiver. That's what his name means. And I'm like, man, that's what my name means? Um, but you know what? If you knew me before, you know, in my BC days, uh, before Christ days, yeah, I pretty much fit that name right to the T. So, uh, But God definitely uh, changed me. So in the, again, in the biblical world, names carry significant meanings tied to one's identity. Now when it comes to God, it was the same thing. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there were many gods. So the Canaanite world was a polytheistic world. They believed in many, many gods. And part of this naming thing that we um, do, we did that with the, the, the people did that with their gods. Okay? So there, there would be the god of fertility, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the stars, god of this city, god of that city. You know, and there were so many different gods, the god of monkeys, the god of whatever. I and mean, if you look at like some of the religious traditions in the world today, uh, they still kind of carry this sort of um, polytheistic view um, and they place an image to represent a god. So, for instance, a bull would represent a fertility god. It, the bull represents strength, right? Um, if you look at the, the world of, I mean, s- the stock market world, it still has that representation. A bull, they call it a bull market when the market is strong, when it's rising, rising prices, rising figures. It's a bull market. And so the bull represents strength. And in that sense, uh, that's, that's what the people were doing in the ancient Near Eastern world. When they carved an image of a bull, they were saying, this god, Baal, is like this. Okay? And so uh, that's what the, the, the understanding was in that time. Now, if I was in ancient Near Eastern Canaan, and I was a farmer, which many of us, if we were living in that time, we would be farming. Um, what we would do is we would, we would need to know the names of our gods because we need to know who to invoke upon for what purpose. And so if, if I'm a farmer, I need to invoke upon the god of fertility. And the reason is this. In those days, the, the way they viewed the universe, it was the fertility god that sent rain. Rain represented seed. You know, like male seed. That's what rain represented. The earth was the womb. Okay? And so when you invoke upon the fertility god, Baal, Marduk, whoever, that god would send rain, the rain would hit the womb of the earth, and then plants would grow. So that was their idea. That was the worldview. That was normal, everyday thinking. In those days. And so it was very important for people to know the names of the right God to do the right thing. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. And as you're turning to uh, Exodus 3, I should mention that this is the part where Moses has that moment with God. God appears to him in the form of a burning bush. And he tells Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. You know, at this point, Moses had been, you know, in the wilderness. He's been a shepherd for many years uh, under his father-in-law, Jethro. Um, And God appears in a burning bush. This has only happened one time in history that, I mean, we know of. God appears in a form of a burning bush and says, you're going to go back to Egypt. 
and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, I don't know about you, um, but if I saw a burning bush, first of all, I would have been like, did I eat something funny? Like, what, what's going on here? I'm seeing a bush. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And it's talking to me. You know what I mean? Like, what's going on here? And, and especially if the burning bush says, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, you would think the reaction would be, okay. <laughs> Simply, okay. Right? But this is what Moses says. Verse 13. This is what Moses says. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, we can read this 21st century Christianity, you know, Canada, and think we could actually just pass over that altogether. And it's like, what's the deal with that? Of all the questions he could have asked this burning bush, what's his name? And again, the reason is because it was so important to know the names of your gods. And so the people that would have been hearing this from Moses would have been like, what's the name of this God that you're talking about? These are my gods. This is the person who, or this is the God that's backing me up. Who's backing you up? What's his name? Right? And so it was this idea back in those days. Okay? Now God's response was awesome. (laughs) It was awesome. This is what God said. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's what the English translation would say. I am who I am. In the Hebrew, his response came in the form of a four-letter word known as a tetragrammaton. Okay? And it's spelt with four Hebrew letters. There was no vowels when it was originally uh, written. Uh, In the English, it would be Y-H-W-H, yod Hey, Vav, Hey. And to this day, this name is revered greatly by the Jewish people. They do not want to pronounce this name incorrectly. They don't want to use it in vain. And so they, they even have time troubles spelling it. They'll, they'll purposely spell it incorrectly even uh, because they don't want to, you know, use it in vain. And, uh, and to this day, even when they write the word God, they'll write G slash D. They don't want to write it out because they, they don't want to use God, God's name in vain. It's highly revered. And uh, the meaning of it even is, uh, I mean, there's so much scholarship uh, regarding the name and what it means. But in short, the meaning of Yahweh, it denotes who God is in relation to humanity. That's what that means. Because if you think about it, all the other gods are certain earthly representations of a spiritual reality. The god of fertility must be like a bull because the bull is, has strength. Let's make that this god. God is saying, there's nothing, there is nothing you can place to represent me. There's nothing you can use to represent me. I am who I am. I reveal myself. You can't title me. That's what God is saying. It's 
awesome. It's so boss. God is so boss. I love that. Right? Because again, the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world had certain earthly attributes. God of the sun. God of fertility. Right? But with Yahweh, there's no earthly thing that can capture his likeness. God is not like a bull because he created the bull. He's beyond the bull. He's above that. God is not like the sun. He created the sun. He's above that. He's not like the stars or the moon. He's above that. Nothing can capture his likeness. That's why he said, I am who I am. So boss. He's so far beyond us. Yet he desires for us to know him. And he desires to be near us. He wants us to relate to him. And it can be hard to relate to someone that says, I am who I am. And so because God wants us to relate to him, he reveals himself more to Moses in Exodus 34, chapter 6 to 7. This is where we will be camping for the next four weeks. So again, let's turn to Exodus 34. And I'll be reading uh, verses 6 to 7. Exodus 34, 6 to 7 says this, The Lord, the Lord, again, I am, I am, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I am the Lord, the Lord. God is revealing who he is to Moses by describing his own attributes. Okay, God is saying, this is who I am. I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving of sin, yet not leaving the guilty unpunished. This is who I am. And we will be looking at the first of the four attributes that God outlines in Exodus 34, and that is the Lord is compassionate and gracious. Now, we've been talking about God's grace a lot here at Trinity. It's one of the trademarks of our church that we preach inexhaustible grace. That Trinity Church is a place where we promote what we're for, we do not promote what we're against. We will not use this platform to put down or slander others, but to promote the grace of God that changes people. Right? So we talk a lot about grace. It's, it's, it's something we are passionate about. So it may not seem new to us to understand God as a God of compassion and grace, but I think what we need to do is actually dig a little deeper into the context of Exodus 34 um, so that we can understand the compassionate and gracious character of God better. Okay? So let me paint a picture for you. This is the world of Exodus prior to coming to Exodus 34. So the people of God, they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. That's a long time. So how many generations is that? That's many generations. My, grand, my dad's 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 dad or whatever. I don't know how many that would be exactly. But 
All that to say, it's many generations of being under slavery. That's a long time. A very long time. And now, God does a miraculous thing. He uses Moses to lead the people out of slavery in an astounding way. Out of slavery and into freedom. And so, they, they come out of Egypt. God parts the Red Sea. This is an amazing thing, by the way, if you read Exodus 14. Like the detail. If you actually read the detail. When I, when I read, read Exodus 14 along, I, I actually was wondering, you know, you know when, when God parted the Red Sea, I wonder what it would have been like to walk through the sea. Because, you know, when the tides go out, you know, if you're by an ocean somewhere and, and the tide goes out, I mean, the, the, the ground's going to be muddy. You know, could you imagine stepping in that? It's like, oh, oh. So, I mean, we're talking close to two million people walking like this in mud. Is that what they did? And I was thinking that. And all of a sudden, you read Exodus 14, and it says that God separated the waters um, with a wall of water on the right, right and left, and they walked on dry ground. I'm like, wow. This wasn't just a tidal phenomenon. This was a miracle. Straight up miracle. God parted the sea and they walked on dry ground. Okay? God took that much care. He's so mindful of his people that he would do that so they can walk on dry ground through the, through the sea. How amazing is that? That's incredible. And so the people of God saw this amazing miracle and they're in a desert now. Albeit it's not comfortable. And Moses is now up a mountain and he's talking to God and the people are kind of like, where's Moses? And who's this God again? What, what, was, what was his name again? I am who I am? What, what is that? Right? And so the people grow impatient and, and they're in a desert. I mean, they're in a desert. And so Aaron, Moses' brother, he's the very first priest in the uh, Old Testament in the Bible. He sees the people and they're like, man, they're not happy. All right, I got to do something about this. And so he's like, okay, okay. Give me all your gold. Give me all your earrings, gold earrings. Just, just give them to me. And what he did was he melted this down and he created a golden calf out of it. Okay. And then this is what Aaron says in Exodus 32 verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Wow. He creates this bull image and says, these are your gods. This bull. These are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. For us reading that, I I mean, at least me, when I read that, I'm like, what? How could they do that? That's horrible. Those are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt? What are you talking about? What about the burning bush? What about the the ten plagues, the parting of the sea? Did you forget that? What happened there? Right? When we read that, it's like, that's crazy. How could they do that? But when you understand, when you try to understand the ancient Near Eastern worldview, their worldview... It actually wasn't a crazy thing for them to do that. I'm not excusing what they did. It was sin. It was sin. 
Because God specifically tells them not to do such things. So if you look back at Exodus 20's Ten Commandments, right? This is the, the time when Moses reveals the Ten Commandments. If you look at the first two commandments, these are what the first two commandments are. Number one is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two was, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right? God told them not to do that. And so I'm not excusing that what they did was, you know, I'm not saying it was right. And I'm not saying, oh, we shouldn't get too uptight over it. But you know, it was sinful, but it wasn't crazy. It actually wasn't a crazy thing. God knew that these idols and these things that they created were distractions. You know, because they, they brought at least a, an illusion of power and comfort. That's what they did. That's, what, that's how they, they thought. The people in Israel, they thought that way. Or the people in Canaan, ancient Near Eastern world, they thought that way. You know, it's kind of like having a lucky charm, right? If you think about it, if I just, if I just have this coin, if I just have this, Okay, if I just have this and I get onto a plane, I'll be good. You know, just that thinking, right? That kind of thinking. I mean, I'm sure we can somewhat understand that thinking. Well, that's kind of like what it was for the Israelites, right? In some sense, what the people of Israel were experiencing in the desert was this. Okay, here they are, rescued by God. God clearly overcame the power of the Egyptians. Um, and th- but now they're in a desert and things got real tough. God did something then, but here we are now, and it's like, we're in a desert. Where's water? We don't have food. Uh, What's going on? Life got real tough. And so what do they do? They revert back to what they knew was comfortable. That's what they were doing. They were reverting back to something they were familiar with. And yes, they disobeyed the command of the Lord to not worship idols or create things, but that's what they knew. And they did what they did out of a for a need for comfort in hard times. Now, can I ask you a question? Can we be honest with ourselves for a moment? Some of us here, we've walked with the Lord for many years. Many years. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something like that before? When you go through a tough situation when you're facing a time of trial and you revert back to something you used to be enslaved by, God delivered you from, but then you go back to out of a sense of security or comfort or to help you take your mind off of what's going on. Have you ever done something like that? When you Look at it from that perspective. It's not as crazy as it seems what the Israelites did in forming the calf. They were reverting back to what they knew. And again, I'm not excusing them. I mean, it was a lack of trust on their part. You know, God wants us to pursue him. Even in times when it's like he's not around. But when God hides, so to speak, that's when God wants us to pursue him harder. And in those times, can I ask you an honest question? How many of you have stopped pursuing God in those times and saying, you know what? I'm just going to pick up some of these other things to fill my time. 
How many of you know what it's like to go through a desert experience in your life? And your spiritual life is dry and hard. Perhaps you may be going through one right now. Some of us here. Where God seems very distant, almost non-existent. Where God seems like he's nowhere in sight. Where it's like, God, are you even there to answer my prayers? Is this even worth my time to be praying and seeking after you right now? Do you even care about my life right now? How many of you, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but I mean, how many of you have at least gone through a season like that or who are going through a season like that? And then you may look back and, you know, there may have been a season in your life before where God was everything. I mean, he was everything. The delight of my soul. I wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is you want to read the word and you just want to sing because he's the song of your heart. You are everything, God. I love you. You love me. You experience the, the liquid love of his presence every day. And you give thanks to God. God, you are awesome. Look, look at all these things that you've done for me. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. Perhaps it was like that at some point in your life and then all of a sudden, life happens. And it's like God hides on you. And all those ex- encounters with the Lord, the, the special times of being in his presence and ex- um, you know, reading the word and getting that rhema, that oh, this word was for me. Those times, it just stops. It's like, it, it just doesn't happen. And then you say, okay, I'm going to put that aside. I'm going to put you aside right now, God. And I'm going to pick this up here. And, and I'm going to pick this up here. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this. And, you know, I'll just, I'll just fill, my, fill my life with these things. And, you know, to distract me. Some call that the dark night of the soul. Or a wilderness experience. I believe every Christian will go through or have gone through this type of season. And if you are going through this season, I just want to say this. It's normal. And God uses this season for you to pursue him harder so that you really have to pursue after him to find him. But it's in those seasons that we, fa- we face many different temptations to fall. Many different temptations to fall into sin. Things that bring momentary pleasures, but they don't last. In fact, they leave us fe- in the gutter feeling terrible after. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know, again, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you know what I'm talking about? Right? And again, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you are walking through life right now? You're carrying a huge weight on your back. You just feel like, I, man. You're tired. You're exhausted from carrying this heavy load. God wants to trade you. He wants to trade. 
You see, repentance really is like trading. Now, when we say that word repentance, there's times when we're like, man, don't like that word. Because oftentimes it's associated with fire and brimstone preaching, right? Repent, you sinner. Repent, you bad person. Just quit being bad. Quit it. Stop it. Stop it. I don't know. At least I think of it that way sometimes. But it, it's uh, now repentance, of course, is forsaking the things that weigh us down. For sure, that, it is a part of that. But repentance is primarily a shift in thinking. It's saying, "Okay, I know this is a small thing. Pretend it weighs a thousand pounds, okay? <laughs> but you're carrying this heavy thing. You're like, oh, just going through life. I need this. I, I really do need this. And it's like repentance is saying, you know what? No, I don't need this." I don't need this weight that's carrying me. I think I, I thought I needed it, but no, I don't need this. I'm going to I'm going to lay it down, and I choose to come before you, God. That's repentance. It's laying down the things that you've picked up and said, "I'm going to pursue these things instead." The moment you lay down that which you've been carrying, God will meet you with his compassion and his grace. The moment you lay it down. It's like he's waiting, waiting. Lay it down, lay it down, lay it down. And we're, we're carrying these things. We're saying, no, I don't, I don't think I can. I don't think I can. And then finally when we say, okay, we lay it down. Boom! He meets you with his compassionate and gracious nature. That's what happened in Exodus 32. When they created the golden calf, afterwards they destroyed it. In fact, they grounded it into powder and had to drink it. <laughs> I don't, you know what? I don't fully get that part. But anyway, they destroyed the golden calf and then God reveals his nature in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. He is ready to encounter you with his compassionate and gracious character and nature. The question is, are you willing to trade? Are you willing, willing to trade that which you've taken up as your illusion of security, your illusion of comfort, whatever it might be? Are you willing to trade? We're just going to take a moment here, just a few minutes. And uh, I'm not going to ask anyone to come to the front. Just where you're at. We're going to take a moment to reflect upon our lives. Reflect upon the things in our lives that we do um, out of a sense of comfort, out of a sense of maybe for stability or strength or whatever it might be. But God is saying, I want you to let that go. Let the Lord speak to you about that. But we're going to take some time to reflect on that. What is God asking you to lay down?
So we'll just take a few moments and just take some time to reflect. I find a lot of times when I um, I ask the Lord this, um, He reveals time. He reveals something to do with time. Again, because uh, time is our greatest commodity, most valuable commodity we have is time. And so, what fills my time? And I've got a lot of stuff that fill my time. And sometimes it's God saying, are you willing to give up one hour? Just one hour? For me, it's Netflix. Just saying. Can I just not turn Netflix on for one hour? Okay, Lord. Anyway. Let's pray. Father, we, we come. We come. We come before you. And Lord, let there be an awareness of your presence now. Let it go with us into tomorrow and the next day and the next day. that our lives would become so aware of your presence with us. And the things that distract us from that awareness of you, God, would you gently remind us of those things and call us into your presence. And Father, for some of us here this morning, we're facing trials. We're going through seasons, a season of a dry spell where it's like we're in a desert spiritually. Father, you lead your people to green pastures and still waters. That's who you are. And so I ask, Lord, that you would um, lead us to those places where our souls can rest in you, where we don't need things, where we don't need people, we don't need anything other than you. Not that those things are bad. I'm just saying, Lord, that we can find our souls rest and fulfillment and satisfaction in you first and foremost. And Lord, as we talk about your compassionate and gracious character, it is something that we need to encounter in order to know. It's one thing to know it intellectually. It's another totally to know it intellectually and experientially. So Father, we want to experience who you are. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the glory and praise. Continue to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.